You're listening to Rocket Night. This is Sharice with Rocket Night Magazine, and today we are going to speak with composer, author, photographer, and, of course, guitarist with the band Police, Andy Summers. He was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003. He won a Grammy twice for Best Rock Instrumental Performance, 1979, Regatta de Blanc, and Behind My Camel, 1980. His photographs have been shown in galleries throughout the world, and he's written several books, one including uh, One Train Later. And if you haven't seen his documentary, it's great. It's on Amazon Prime. It's called Can't Stand Losing You, Surviving the Police. So today we're going to talk first about his tour. It's called The Crack Lens and a Missing String Tour. What can you tell me about the tour and what will someone expect? Let's say if they go to a show, what will they see? They can expect to have a good time and they have a nice surprise. <laughs> they haven't seen me quite in this context before. Um, this show is, I guess, what would be called um, multimedia. It's um, film, photographs, photography, music, obviously, and and. But when I say spoken word, it's me like ad-libbing on stage. I have several stories that I tell. So it's, it's pretty full. But mm-hmm. essentially, um, the show, you know, the, the, you know, the photography and the music, you know, I have several photographic sequences that I play different kinds of music to throughout the show with my electric guitar and all the beautiful effects. And some solo, some with backing tracks. There's a few police songs in there that have been rearranged for this especially. So that's what it is. It's me playing to these visuals that I've shot all over my life and strung together in all these sequences, you know, along with some spoken stories that usually go down a storm. Very funny. That's what it is. So we've had a very successful tour. And this uh, section in Florida is the last last three shows of this year anyway. So, yeah. I looked it up. You haven't been in Florida since 1988. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I think I played there with the police. Yeah. We did. Yeah, in Miami. I... Yeah, we played with the police. I, I individually haven't. I mean, I toured the States a lot on my own in those days. So, yeah, that could have been the time. But I, I played all through the 90s as well. And on, well, I've never stopped, actually, until until the pandemic hit. And before the pandemic hit, I was actually doing this show uh this multimedia show it's gotten much more sophisticated now my last show was before this was at the metropolitan museum of art in new york which was kind of a thrill and we sold that out and then you know the uh pandemic struck and so just like many people many performers i'm just really getting back to it so this was 
But it does, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I've been out actually in America, the United States, playing in, you know, cities all across the country since uh, July, on and off. Um, and it does seem like a long time to me since I was out actually doing this and sort of proving. But, it, you know, being a stage performer is a pretty addictive thing. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it. But I, I don't go out for too long at any one point, you know, five or six shows then stop, come home for a bit, then go back out. That's how we've done it. But I've played all across the U.S. since July. Well, you live in California, correct? Yep. Yes, I do. I live in Los Angeles. And you've been in California a long time. I yeah. notice a lot of the British musicians all live there. Yeah, it's a huge British influx here. Um, people go, you know, why are you living in California? I go, why are you living in London? You know, try it. I figured you know, it's the weather, maybe, or yes, the weather. industry. Well, the industry is here. That's really true. There's a lot of contact. It's a great place to live. Mm -hmm. Weather is fabulous, although actually it's raining right now, which is pretty unusual. It's like the start of winter. Yeah, you know, I was here in my early 20s, and I went to college here and lived here. For a while. So it's kind of ingrained in my soul somewhat. You know, I'm basically half English, half Californian at this point. Yeah, I saw uh, that you went in the 60s to California, and you were there during the heyday, right? Late well, 60s? Sort of the heyday of that particular, you know, the... the I mean, psych psychedelic California? <laughs> Absolutely. It was a fantastic time to be here. You know, and I guess that's where my head got turned. I did go back to England, but then I um, turned around and came back and lived here for a while, about five years, and then went back to London for, and was in the police for about 15 years. And then ultimately after that, I don't know, I got a bee in my bonnet and I thought, mm, I'm going back to LA. Let's go back to storytelling. You are so good at writing stories. I've seen your documentary, you have books, and you take photographs. It seems like you're just a natural storyteller. Yeah, I guess so, because I have actually done it. I mean, I wrote my own sort of autobiography. It took me a couple of years to put that together. But I very much got into writing with that. And I, I was involved with a lot of writers at that time. I mean, you know, I, and I'm a person who is a totally avid reader. You know, I'm never without a book. So I do love literature. And it sort of came to me at that point after the police, like, I should write an autobiography. And so I got to it. And it, it, it took a while to get it really right. You know, there's a lot of techniques involved, as well as trying to write really well. Um, but I did it. And, you know, in my life, personally, I get asked to write a lot of essays, lots of things for magazines all around the world. So I, I'm very used to, you got to write something, you know, and, and I do. So I'm sort of, sort of, a, half the time I'm a writer as well, because it's just, because I'm a well-known person and I'm articulate, I expected to write stuff for people, which I'm always happy to do. And then I wrote the uh, book of short stories, and I, I've got another one ready to go, which we'll see what happens next year, but uh, i trying to put another one together. No, I enjoy it, and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's, uh, I figured and, you either have a good memory or you used to keep a diary. I'm not. I haven't been much of a journal writer and you know although you know i guilt trip myself 
early on in life, you know, I should be writing all this down all the time. But I never did, really. I never did. But I do have a very good memory. But the one kind of journal thing I think I've had since uh, I started with the police was uh, being a photographer. So I've photographed so much stuff. You know, I have a vast archive, which actually serves as a journal of all these times. And, you know, I'd look at that. I go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And that was in Austria. And it was uh, whatever. So it's a photographic diary, basically. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Your photography, of course, you started in film. Do you do digital now? I do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I say that with no shame because, you know, there is this big sort of guilt. Oh, you should be shooting film. Hey, man, I shot film forever. My last um, go with film was in um, 2012. And I traveled all across Asia, almost every country, for about three weeks. And I shot 90 rolls of film. It was a real hassle, you know, and I lost a couple along the way, you know, going through airport scanners and all that. And like the, literally the day I got back to the U.S., they announced the digital Leica. I, God, I wish you'd given it to me three weeks earlier. So, yeah, no. Ultimately, we all like the film look, but I mean, there's so many tricks with digital now. It's sort of insane to to go against the grain. And also, I just on a very practical level, I've spoken to some kids about this who want to be people who shoot film. It's very expensive now to process. Where do you even send them? The labs? Where are they? Do it anymore? I did it for you know all my life, you know, and that you know when we went digital, there it is. Because times have changed. Do you do editing too? Do you use programs to, like Lightroom? Or what, what do you like to do as far as processing your pictures? Well, I use Photoshop. We get it in there. And, it's you know, I mean, basically with a Leica camera, they come out very well. But we, we raise the level. And yeah, I don't mess with my photographs much because I like to shoot them in a way that they don't need it. I mean, you can occasionally go, you God, I wish that white blob wasn't in the corner. Let's make it black like the rest of the thing there. You know, tiny things like that. But um, I don't, you know, I edit the way I work is I have a pretty good setup. I have someone who works with me. You know, you shoot on film class. I hand them over. They get put down in the big computer. Then they come back to me and I look through them and I select out of, the card, the various cards that I've now been have been returned to me. What's worth while, which might be of interest. So I think about it in a lot of different ways, and I've got a very good way of, you know, I've got words. I've got over a hundred words that I use to describe a photograph. You know, it could be as simple as cloud, white, sky, whatever. It could have several words, but this way I can go in and find things very easily. It's incredible compared to the old days. So I've got an amazing library of all sorts of uh, material that I access very easily. I saw a real interesting picture that you took. Uh, I think it was during Semana Santa in Spain. There were a bunch of hooded people. It looked pretty creepy. <laughs> well, it's not creepy, actually. I mean, it looks creepy. I mean, I used that one shot. I mean, it's just been on the cover of The Guardian in England, actually, that, that particular picture you're talking about. They kind of look like KKK people. Which is debatable. But yeah. it's a very powerful shot because those guys uh, that you see in the Black Hoods, um, it's it's during a week called uh, Semana Santa. It's the religious week at the end of April. And they're all over the place and they march together and they wear the Black Hoods and they're called Nazarenos. 
So uh, this particular night came, and it's an incredible thing to go. I was in Seville in the south of Spain. They play this with them as the band marching, playing the Spanish funeral music. Yeah, it's all about, it's religious. Mm. And uh, so I had an incredible night or a few nights following them and taking pictures of them. And uh, that one, I got down on the ground, they stopped, and I managed to get that amazing shot. Um, that's an incredible time to go there. And, you know, I want to go again, do it again. I like that picture. I also like what I call your raw pictures from the 80s, meaning the ladies that are in the hotel room and just showing rock and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of thing. You had some, that's what I call raw because it's what's around I, me, the news yeah. and stuff. I love those. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm at home with uh, my, my wife is present. So, <laughs> well, it's our, to me, it's our, well, it is art. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but it's authentic. It's a lot of fun. You know, yeah. Any, any of my pictures, I'm not into that. It's all friendly, super mm -hmm. friendly. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is your, what are your thoughts on AI? You know, all these uh, well, software I, programs use AI now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's getting, well, I, you know, I'm basically, I'm scared of it. I, I'm scared of the future a little bit where it's going because I don't think we've got that long. I mean, I mean, you know all this stuff. We all know all this stuff. It's terrifying. One day the robots, so-called robots, take over. We're, you know, it's just such a cliche. But um, I just have to understand this um, compulsion for our own, to to destroy it, to become a secondary species and then get wiped out. That's what seems to be. That's, I mean, you can read so much stuff into this. I mean, I love all the conveniences of the things that you can do now, and it's pretty incredible. Um, but there's there is a dark side to it because you just don't know what the truth is anymore about anything, because everything is so easily manipulated now. And being a person from another, you know, generation, uh, you you start looking backwards fondly at where you came from. When I don't know, things seemed a lot simpler. I mean, but that sounds like someone who's who's grown up, you know, talking instead of uh, a young person might be uh, have a very different attitude. But I do think there's a, a it's inherently threatening. I mean, it is such a science fiction cliche, but we're probably only about five years away from it. You know. Yeah, uh, some of the pictures that I've seen look seamless. You can't tell. Oh, if no, someone's totally. head has been superimposed or not, and that oh. could be pretty dangerous for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. It is that sort of side of it is incredibly insidious, and uh, well, everything is in a real bad mm -hmm. way now, and it's um hard to you know keep your faith. You know, watching the news, watching what's going on in this country, what's going on in the Middle East. Um, it's terrifying, and the Middle East thing is terrifying because it seems like a sort of biblical prophecy to me that this is where it's all going to go down finally and it'll be right there in israel and palestine it's, it's almost very sci-fi but it could be a reality in the future where machines take over <laughs> well it's, it is it's such a cliche we've been reading about yeah. it since we were born but unfortunately it's coming true i don't know i mean it's a deep subject and there are people yeah yeah, you know, real scientists and all that that's far into it. I mean, but I haven't, mm -hmm. I've read positive reports, I've read negative reports, but uh, 
I mean, it's brilliant that, you know, mankind is able to take technology this far, but it does seem we're, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, there are stories about this that we're taking ourselves on as we do it. Yeah. Well, I, I notice a lot of jobs have been replaced going to the store now. Everything's self checkout. <laughs> like, where did the people go? <laughs> I know. I know. And I don't like it. I walk in. I don't I either. Go, Oh God! Oh, you go to the airport. You got to go. You got to get it together. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hello, how are you today? It's a fun time, you know. Just stupid stuff, but Christ, mm-hmm. yes, it's gotten very impersonal. The only good side about that is coming in through back into the US or like Canada, where I just was. It's, you virtually just walk straight through, and now you know, you know, mm-hmm. they, they look at your face, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, on the machine. Um, yeah, I mean. Um, I wouldn't want to be born around now because I think the world, I mean, of course, a horrible perspective on it, but the world in the future seems fairly terrifying to me. I wanted to ask a couple of things about the police um, and, and yourself too. You were you were established way before you even entered the, you know, the police. You were a blues artist. Uh, you had been around for a while. Well, I wasn't really a blues artist, but you know, I'd like you know, my story is unusual because, you know, I was in bands when I first started, and I was playing in London. I was completely in the scene, and then I basically left, and, and uh, I came to America. I was in another band, The Animals, and and I just I got you know seduced by L.A. and California, and I stayed. Well, I went to college, is what I did. I basically just went to college, and I ended up spending about five and a half years in L.A. Then went back to London, and but I was a very good player, and you know, and people remember, you know, I thought I remember the time I went back to London, and it was a harsh reality after living in California. Um, and I had to sort of get back into the scene, but most people remembered me at least because I'd been in a very popular band, and I gradually started to. you know, be known everywhere. And I started getting invited to do all sorts of things just as a guitar player. And then the odd thing was I sort of threw it all to one side and joined this so-called punk band called The Police. Yeah, and, and I wanted to talk about the word punk, <laughs> okay, because I lived during this time period. In fact, The Police was the first concert I went to where I wrote a live review and was published in the college newspaper. I actually saw you guys, I remember it was October 27th, 1979, and would you believe it was Disney World? Oh, I remember that gig, yeah, we came up up the thing, you know, it was insulting, but they paid us so much money by our then standards, they paid us $8,000 and couldn't even believe it. It was like we'd made it, you know, the rainbow had come our way, it was amazing. But of course it was fucking stupid it was disney world and it was coming up in that i was shocked i know i because i had read earlier in in that year i used to you know read cree magazine rolling stone i was waiting for the police to come and then they had this big halloween thing at disney world they had dr hook they had sea level and then when i saw police it's like i am so there so Mm. i went to orlando and you guys played in tomorrowland terrace I'm 17 years old. <laughs> yes. right. And uh, 
I couldn't believe I, the the stage was like a foot high and there weren't that many people. And, but the, no, there weren't. I well, was we, like the only one dancing. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't believe we were playing at Disneyland, but we did it for the money because $8,000 then was like gigantic to yeah. us. It was like the most money we'd ever earned in our life. We couldn't even believe it. So that's why we did it. You know, I don't, I don't blame you. I mean, it was for me, I remembered that gig my entire life because yeah. it was so special to me and it kind of launched my whole music yeah, career. <laughs> didn't really go with uh, Disneyland, but whatever, you know. Just know that it, it meant a lot to me and I have all, all the albums and I wanted to ask you about some of the stuff on Outlandos Diamore and the whole punk thing. When you guys came over... You were called punk, but you weren't really punk. No, we weren't. We never were. Because to us, punk was Sex Pistols and protest music and spitting and, you know, everything that we had heard about. And we didn't have the YouTube at that time period, so we only had magazines and yeah. albums at that time period. And we kind of... And I say we, meaning my friends, we kind of put you into the new wave category. And that's what we thought we were. It and, suited us to be in yeah. America and be called new wave. It didn't suit us to be in London, and no one thought we were punk, mm -hmm. and so we couldn't get a gig. Well, in, in 79, The Knack came out. Blondie was big. Devo was hot. It was all B-52s. That was all considered new wave. And your music was complex it wasn't simple like you know pogo dancing jumping up and down you had like kind of arabesque melodies and stuff like that yeah it was a really highly musical band yeah sound and, like anybody else and that's what we liked about it and back then we used to like to go out and dancing and you could dance to every song and for my 18th birthday all we did was play regatta de blanc and uh you know, Orlando Stiamore, all, their, all, your, all well, the police albums. And be, because I noticed you'd have a lot of arabesque kind of sounding stuff, like Zenyatta Mandata is one. Mother, there's kind of an arabesque kind of thing uh, in there. But how uh, the heck okay. did Mother come about? Well, I wanted to, I, I was sort of bit listening a lot to Captain Beefheart in those days. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit of an influence on me. That's why I wrote it, and it was kind of provocative subject matter. I was scared to play it to my own mother, but she just laughed. She thought it was hilarious. When I first heard it, I was thinking of Tommy and Keith Moon, Uncle Ernie, you know, yeah. kind of that wild, you know, sound or whatever. And behind your camel, that sounds very Middle Eastern. Do you you must have a, a real love for that kind of sound, or what can like you tell me about a little, that? A little bit kind of quirky melody and different police. I mean, the way we worked, you know, Sting was the principal songwriter because he he would only sing what he could sing, and uh, so Stuart and I would get to get at least one track on each album. Sometimes there were collaborations. But I, you know, I was into much stranger music naturally. You know, I like to think like to be part jazz, all kinds of stuff, and not straight ahead pop. And so I came up with that one, which is really well constructed and interesting, and it's in seven four time. Plus, I did the vocal on it. You know, when we handed it over to A and M, of course, 
they were in a slight state of shock hearing a song like that in the middle, but it was actually very hip. Sting liked it. He liked it, actually. Especially at that time period, you guys were the only band that sing genres, you know, throwing in like a little Caribbean sound or... Oh, that gets overplayed a bit. Yeah, we did all kinds of things. That's what made the band what it was. You know, both Sting and I came from sort of jazz backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Sting was, yeah, we were both into all stuff, other stuff as well. You know, I mean, we had the knowledge of blues and um, jazz and pop music, Beatles, all of it. You know, we, we were pretty schooled players. And, it, you know, but what it was was the unique chemistry that the three of us seemed to, to make. You know, you can't just... Yeah, people say, oh, I could have done that. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. You didn't have a drummer, a guitar player, or a singer like that. You couldn't. It was a one-off. And that's why it's still going so strong. I think yeah. that's why there's lasting power to it. So I don't want to keep you much longer. Is there anything that you would want people to know about the show? Or anything about your current work? Well, I think the show is kind of where I'm at now, and um, it's an enjoyable experience. I mean, it goes down every night. The audience are out of their seats at the end, so it's a lot of guitar playing, a lot of photography, some some pretty amusing stories. You know, it's pretty full on. So um, I don't think there's anything else out there quite like this at the moment. So it's definitely worth your time. If you could put in two hours, I usually go about two mm. hours, which they're saying is too long. They're telling me off <laughs> and too long on stage. Do you have any new books coming out or anything else? I've any got other? one I'm holding at the moment uh, called The Trouble with Guitars, where I've kind of come up with a construction for the whole book. Uh, well, that, I'll see where it goes. I mean, I'm ready. I have to put the photography with it. Well, thank you for speaking with me. And I will see you in Clearwater in December. And welcome to Florida. Welcome back okay, to Florida. Florida. <laughs> well, yeah, great. All right. You're such a long time. <laughs> I'm still there. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, okay. Andy. Okay. All right. See you later. Ciao. Goodbye. Bye. Here's Andy Summers performing Circus.
You're listening to Rock at Night. The introductory song, Get On Down, is from blues artist Billy, Billy Bass Alford. Look for his music at ReverbNation.com. 